morning, we are going to be back in our exposition of the book of Acts. So if you would, turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are going to be in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. As you know, the book of Acts is inspired church history. So if you come to the book of Acts and you're, you're wondering what part of my mind, what part of my theology is the book of Acts supposed to engage, this is Luke writing down for all of church history to this gentleman Theophilus so everyone would know the account of the Gospel of Luke and the account of the Acts of the Apostles. If you remember, the book of Luke and the book of Acts traveled as one document in the early church. They were together. And when you're studying the book of Acts, you're really encountering what it looks like to see Jesus' disciples, the apostles, carry out what they were taught by the Lord Jesus. So every time you come to Acts, you're reading about really the fulfillment of what Jesus said it ought to look like when His people carry out His mission when He goes and sits down at the right hand of the Father and sends back His Spirit. There's a lot of confusion about Acts though, right? We, we, we draw lots of principles from Acts. It's, it's illustrative material. It's, it's narrative. And so we're being indirectly taught by it. It's not didactic or instructive material directly. But it was intended to give us a narrative of church history so we know where we came from. And there's a lot of poor conclusions drawn as people study Acts. Like, for example, people talk a lot about the idea of what the church should do and what the church should do as it relates to missions or being a missionary. We draw a lot of conclusions from Acts, don't we? And that's not wrong. In fact, it's appropriate. But I want to ask you a question and we can talk about this for a moment. What passage would you go to in your Bible if someone said to you, could you show me where, where the word missions shows up in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Anybody know? Where would you go? Anybody have any passages? What about missionary? Anyone ever seen the word missionary in their Bible? How many of you have never thought about that until this morning? That the word missions or missionary is not in your Bible? Yeah, a lot. Right? There's no single passage that you would go to. And yet, if we put five people in the same conversation and we use the term missions and missionary, each of you would have a definition of what that meant and a body of beliefs that you brought. And you might have five different perspectives. So all of a sudden we have a man-made term that we've attached a whole bunch of terminology to and five different definitions could be in the same conversation and who's right and who's wrong. Does anyone know where the term missionary originated? Where it comes from? This would be impressive if somebody knew this. Anybody know the first time the term missionary was used, documented? Any guesses? Pretty quiet on missions this morning. <laughs> Any guesses? First time the word missionary was used? Yeah. David Nope. Before that? Ian. Close. You're getting closer. Yeah, that was close. In that range. Yeah. Anybody know? It actually was not for Christians. In fact, missions was first used by 
the Jesuits, which is a group of Roman Catholics who originated in Spain, who sent out the first missionaries in 1598 from Spain to go proselytize on other continents. There's your first use of the word missionary. I decided I'd go ask the oracle, Google, about missions. <laughs> Some really profound stuff emerged. So I learned that missionary, Webster's Dictionary, describes missions as a person sent by a church into an area to carry on evangelism or other activities as education or hospital work. A person strongly in favor of programs and principles who attempts to persuade others to be converted. Or a person sent on a mission. That's Webster. How about Wikipedia? Even more profound. A missionary is a member of a religious group sent into an area to proselytize or perform ministries of service, such as education, literacy, social justice, healthcare, and economic development. You just start searching the internet and you see the concept of mission and missionaries emerge and everyone ties a whole set of definitions to it. So where did the word come from? Where did we get the idea of missionary or missions? It's not wrong, right? to use a term to attempt to describe a biblical concept. For example, we use the term Trinity. It's not found in your Bible either. But we're attempting to describe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The three distinct persons of the Godhead, but they're all one. So where did missions come from? Well, the Latin versions of your Bible that started being populated in the 1500s, so the, the, the main language of Latin was going across Europe and other places, and they wanted to get Bible into the common language the best they could, so they translated your Greek and your Hebrew the best they could into Latin. And in the Latin version of your Bible, you see the first idea of this term for missions emerge. And really, the, the Latin word is mito. It means to send. And so it was put into the New Testament in the book of Acts when they were attempting to say, here's a person who's being sent or a sent one. They are being mitoed. They're being sent on a mission. And so the word there originated this idea of mito that became missions that we started describing a person being sent as a what? Missionary. The New Testament equivalent is actually the word that we get apostle from. Apostello, the, the idea of one who's being sent. To, to, to a, we could say to apostle someone is to send someone. To send them out. Apostolo, to send them out on a mission. So I have a question and then a series of statements to help us think about getting back to a biblical definition. And if you're wondering why I'm doing this, it's because in our narrative in Luke, this is going to be Luke's aim to make sure that we've got good God-ordained biblical categories as we understand the local church as it relates to being mitoed or being sent or being missioned out. So we make a statement. And then I'll ask some questions here. When we use the term missions or missionary work, we must realize we're using a man-made term to capture a biblical concept of one being sent. So if we know that, then I have a question for you. Whose mission are we going on? It's Christ's mission. It's God's mission. Tim, what happens when a soldier is given a mission and stops doing the mission that he was sent to do? It's court-martial. It ceases to be God's mission and it becomes what? 
your own mission. So if we attach terminology to the mission of God, and it's different than the, what he says it looks like to be sent, we may be well-meaning, we may be energized, we may be passionate, we may cross geographical borders and into other countries and go with all this zeal. But if it's not what it looks like to be a sent one by God, then it's no longer God's mission. We can call it missions all we want, but it ceases to be God's mission. We're not going to court-martial anybody in here. <laughs> However, I think it's important to think about it in that type of terminology. So for a Christian to be sent on God's mission, to deviate is to go outside of what God wants His mission to be for the church. And I think today, all around the world, there's those that are sent, that are well-meaning, that are, that are excited, that really want to do good work, and they have a big heart. But I fear sometimes they have such a poor concept of what it means to be a sent one on God's mission that they may call themselves a missionary, but they're not really doing the work of sent ones in your New Testament. That's a grief, right? To think about, would you imagine spending your life zealously for what you imagined was God's mission only to have someone teach you a biblical ecclesiology, a right view of the church, and a biblical missiology, a right view of missions that flows from the church, maybe 20 years into your work, and realize I may have done a lot of good things, but were they God's things? GIBC uses the term missionary. We've adopted the term. It's an appropriate term as long as we define it by what God says it should be defined by. I love what the Nine Marks ministry says about missionaries. Here's what they say. Missionary, quote, is simply an extra biblical term that has linguistic roots in the idea of being sent, as I just described to you, those Latin roots. It has been coined to help label biblical concepts. Listen to, the, listen to these next lines. The church must preserve and teach these biblical concepts. We should not use labels in such a way that, um, that, uh, way that either of these biblical concepts disappear. And so earlier in the article, when he's saying there, you could actually use the term missions and teach it in such a way that you shield people from the biblical definition of what it means to be sent on a mission. And I think... That's my heart in teaching the book of Acts. See, teaching you the book of Acts is teaching you a biblical ecclesiology, a right view of the church by watching the church unfold. And a right understanding of the church flows right into an right understanding of missions. It's as Joel James said, all missions is, is your ecclesiology with a passport. It's all you've done. Whatever we see to do in any context of church life, you just take it across the globe and do the exact same thing God says to do somewhere else. Obviously being sensitive to the culture and to the context and being thoughtful and loving. But you don't change God's mission. So, if apostles were the first sent ones, right? They were sent by God. So we should capture that. Apostles are sent ones. To be a missionary, to be sent, is to be one who is sent out then what did Jesus tell His apostles, His disciples to do? Well, turn back to Matthew 28. This just sets up our section in the book of Acts. What were the sent ones told to do? And those of you that are on campuses and other places where the concept of missions comes up, all you have to do is keep going back to your Bible and saying, what did God say the great mission was or the great commission was when He sent out His apostles? Because what that looked like and what they were to do is really what we're to be about. And anything outside of that, I'm not saying this to be harsh, but you've gone beyond God's mission. 
That's not good. So what did Jesus say to the sent ones that he was going to send? Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Quite the statement. Only he can claim that. But he's about to pass that authority off to the New Testament ministry and the New Covenant ministry of the church. He says, okay, the main idea here of going on God's mission is in the middle of verse 19. Make disciples. So the mission is to make people see what it means to follow Christ. So that means you share the gospel with them. And then, when you're helping them become disciples, 19 says there at the beginning, you go. That's the idea that, that modifies this. To make a disciple, you must first go. So the idea is it's proactive. And then he says, you baptize them. If you're going to make a disciple, you must go get them and you must baptize them. And baptism is far too underplayed because the term baptism is always merged with local church life in the book of Acts. When this commission, this mission, gets spread out in the book of Acts, what do you see? You see people saved, baptized, and added to the church. So when he says baptize them, he says teach them a biblical ecclesiology and make sure they become members of local churches that represents how they know they're part of the universal body because they've joined a local body and been baptized before that body and recognized by that body and affirmed by that body in their testimony and are known as part of that church. When he says baptism in Acts, it means local church life. So he says, you must go, you must teach them about the local church and help them apply believers' baptism, and then notice the last way you make disciples there. You must also teach them, verse 20, to observe not some, not a little bit, not just what you want, not what you're comfortable with, but everything I have commanded to you. Lo, I am with you till the end of the age. What is the end of the age? When Jesus Christ returns... Bloody robe, sword out of his mouth, coming back in the second coming. And until he returns to set up his new heavens and his new earth and the new kingdom, we are to be about the business of the great mission from Jesus. And then in, look at the book of Acts now. He repeats that theme, Acts 1.8. He gets with his disciples. He does a 40-day message on the kingdom and says, Hey, the kingdom's coming. Until it comes, you've got some business to do, men. What did he send the first missionaries to do? Acts 1.8 You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is leaving. He's leaving them the third person of the Trinity to empower them. And you shall be my witnesses. So what does it mean to be a sent one? You go out and witness the truth of the gospel. Both in Jerusalem, so that's where it starts. You remember, book of Acts, that's where we started. Acts 2, the church is born. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6, Acts 7. And then you hit Acts 8 and the church is in Jerusalem. And what happens? They kill Stephen. And the church starts to go under full-scale persecution, right? In Acts 8. And what happens? The church spreads from Jerusalem, notice, to Judea and Samaria. That's north of Jerusalem and south of Jerusalem. Excuse me, Samaria is north, Judea is south. So what is, what is happening here? The book of Acts is about the great mission of God carried out through what? Individuals disconnected from churches? No. Missionaries... We'll call them, associated with local churches, going out and sharing the gospel. And as God starts to save people, churches are raised up and they start in Jerusalem. Then we see them are born in Samaria and Judea. And then next they're going to go to the ends of the earth when he goes to the Gentiles. And we saw a picture of that, if you remember, with the Ethiopian eunuch who could take the gospel to Africa. And we saw the Samaritan church born with Simon the sorcerer through Philip. 
We're seeing these churches warm. You must understand, to read the book of Acts is to read the priority of the local church and missions and sent ones flowing out of local churches being born, leaders raised up, and churches being established. You would not exist in the book of Acts as a follower of Jesus Christ unless you are an active, involved, associated, under leadership, using your gifts, local church member. They wouldn't even know who you were as a follower of Christ. Acts knows nothing of an autonomous Christian floating around a Bible church. You wouldn't even have access to New Testament contact. How would you get the letters? They landed at churches. You'd know nothing. You say, Darren, why in the world are you bringing all that in here? I'll tell you why. Because I spent my wheels thinking and thinking and thinking about why in the world Acts chapter, I want you to go back to it now, chapter 9 verses 32 to 43 is included in the book of Acts. You say, what do you mean? Well, if you look at Acts 39, 32 to verse 43, it's very interesting. It almost looks like it's out of place. It's inserted in the middle of this massive, incredible sections. Think about it. Acts 9 up to this point, we just watched Saul the murderer, the Apostle Paul, persecuting Christians. He's radically converted and sent out to start preaching the gospel. And there's three murder attempts. And it's this incredible scene of Paul emerging on the scene. From Saul, Paul the murderer, to Paul the loving, servant-minded follower of Christ. And then that stops in 931. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, we are about to see... Somewhere around a 7,000 year breach dissolved. You say, what do I mean? Well, since the Tower of Babel, way back in Genesis, Jew and Gentile have been broken apart. Now in the church age, in Acts 10, we are about to see Peter go to Cornelius and his household and the first Gentiles are going to receive the Spirit and be added to the New Testament church. And basically a 7,000 year barrier and a dividing wall is about to be broken down. I mean, you're, you're coming out of this massive section, heading into this massive section, and then inserted in the middle of it is a couple random stops by Peter in a couple random towns <laughs> that we haven't even really been accustomed to. Why did God include this? God included, I believe, through Luke, 9, 32 to 43, because he wants us to realize outside of these incredible scenes that were going on, he's going to show us some incredible scenes, but outside of all these incredible scenes that are going on, the apostles are doing the work of missionaries. They're doing the work of sent ones. They're traveling around to little local churches around the region where they're being born and they're ministering to them. They're supporting them. They're encouraging them. They're coming alongside them because this is the normal work of the church. And so... Well, the gifts aren't, as I'll talk about in a moment, I don't believe the miraculous gifts are active today. God's power is still put on display in the church because we're going to see the miraculous gifts of healing be on display twice here. But as for our outline today in 9.32 to 43, and we're just going to walk right through it this morning and finish it, here's what I want you to see, and I'm just going to pop them out of the text as they emerge because I think this is Luke's point. We're going to see three elements that are always present in the mission of God for the church. We can say three elements that are always present in the mission of God for His church. The preaching of the gospel, the prioritizing of the local church, and the power that can only be credited to God. Three elements that always show up 
in church planning life, in missionary life. And what you have here is Peter representing a sent one. Preaching the gospel, prioritizing local churches, and power that can only be credited to God. At the end, I'm going to apply those three areas to us. So let's walk through this narrative. These are going to show up. Notice verse 32 with all, all that backdrop in your mind what we're flying up to. Verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions... Stop there. We haven't seen Peter since back in Acts 8 when he went face to face with Simon the sorcerer and told him, your love for money, your love for ambition is going to take you to hell. That's what he told Simon the sorcerer. And Simon the sorcerer bolted. That's the last time we saw Peter. Now we've been doing all this other stuff, watching Paul's life, and Peter emerges. And we can say, what has Peter been doing? Well, verse 32. He's been traveling around the regions and going and seeing saints. Peter's been spending his time prioritizing local churches that are being born. Local churches that are being planned. You think about that. Since the gospel spread, we, we don't know if we're looking at the book of Acts on the timeline continuum six months or three years this has been going on. This is where Acts starts to speed up quite a bit. We're not really sure about the timeline until we get a little bit farther in 11 or 12 and we see some, some better dating. But for now, we just know this. The apostles' ministry, what were they doing with their time? They were going around and calling on local churches and ministering to them, supporting them, encouraging them. And along the way, guess what they were doing? Preaching the gospel to every single person they could to see more people come to know Christ. This is what the sent ones were doing. They were about local church life, supporting churches, and seeing new churches planted. That's biblical missions. So, this is what Peter's doing. Traveling through these regions, and notice, he runs into a church. Verse 32. He came also to the saints who lived. Notice there that interesting word. You might wonder how to pronounce it. The L-Y-D-D-A, that little city. It's Lida is how you would say it. He comes to this little town of Lida. Lida is probably uh, roughly 75 miles or so from Jerusalem. So if I draw a map for you here, we've got Paul who's, who's way, way up here now, um, back traveling like he's heading up towards Asia in our last, I mean, um, Greece in our last couple sections. You've got Samaria, Samaria here. You've got Jerusalem here. You've got Galilee here and Judea here. And so right here on your map, you've got this, this little town called Lida. And Peter is going around there, notice, to see the saints. How do we know those, that's a church? Well, what happens in the New Testament when churches are written to? To the saints who are in... Ephesus. To the saints in such location. When saints is used, it's talking about a body of holy people that have been gathered together, called from the culture, come together as a church. So Peter is coming and calling on this little church. And notice what happens. The narrative's so short, it flies by. You can hardly, hardly see much detail, but it's amazing. Notice, he came to the saints who li lived in Lida, and there he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. So, we've got this believer in the church, here in town, in the, in the, the saints in Lida, and they find this believer, Ananias. And you just don't miss the details there. I mean, think about your life. When you are, when you are crept up in your bed for eight days, you're grumpy. When you're sick for three days, you're grumpy. Man, if you're, some, sometimes some of us don't even do a couple hours we get so restless when we're not feeling good. I know I do. 
here he is bedridden for eight years, paralyzed, and we're going to see in a moment, probably sleeping on the same mat. Eight years, this beloved brother in this church is paralyzed, sleeping, re- sleeping, resting, eating, living, doing everything on this mat, unable to do hardly anything. So, what happens? Peter walks right up to him. Peter says this, 34, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Now, sometimes, you know, you read it and it reads kind of funny. It feels like something I'd want to say to my kids. Jesus Christ says, get out of bed. (laughs) That's what it feels like. But in reality, what he's doing is he's walked into this little local church and you can imagine this church is probably buzzing at the idea of Peter has come to town. Peter is in town and maybe there was even a a propensity to lift him up too high for who he was as an apostle. So he comes in, he's going to do this miracle and he says, the authority is not for me, the authority is from Christ. Notice who heals him. Jesus Christ tells you to get up and make your bed. Now, Why does he not only heal him, but tell him to get up and make his bed? Because probably he was sleeping on this mat, and to show the completion of the miracle. You think about this. This is a paralyzed man who had no muscle probably left in his legs. He had no ability to use them or exercise them. And in a moment when Jesus Christ's authority is evoked and Peter speaks, he gets up and makes the bed he's been sleeping on and goes out walking through town. The reason Peter told him to do that is to show the completeness of Jesus' work through the apostles when he does a miracle. That's important to note because the office of apostle and the miraculous gift of miracles, when those miracles happened, it was dead people coming to life. It was organic abnormalities of people unable to be treated by the medical world, completely healed in a moment, not just a little bit. He didn't get up and go limping around. The, the man in Acts uh, 3 and 4, there was a paralytic, got up and started leaping through the temple. The reason you see the details after these healings is to show the absolute supernatural nature if someone has the miraculous gift of healings. This isn't like a friend of mine went to a decent church for a number of years and he was on, he hung around the elders there and one of the elders said he had the gift of healing. And my friend said to him, how do you know you have the gift of healing? And the friend said to him, well, my wife's back was hurting and I went and prayed for her back and her back started feeling a little better. And so I believe I have the miraculous gift of healing. My friend said, well, couldn't you have just prayed for her and God does miracles through prayer? Well, yeah, but I think I have the gift because I put my hand on her back and her back got better a little bit. That's not the gift of healing. The miraculous gift of healing, which we should love as defined by the Scriptures, is when someone who has the authority of Jesus Christ does something so powerful, so amazing, it's not like you lengthen someone's leg two inches. You know, the perception of it like you see on TV. Look at the miracle worker. He lengthened the legs two inches. No, this is a miraculous, supernatural work where only God could be given credit because no man could ever accomplish what had just been done. That's the miraculous gift of healing put on display. No self-generated act could bring this about. So, look at 34. Ananias gets up. Immediately, the text says, and he starts walking around. And look at 35. And all who lived in Leda and in Sharon, which is north of there, saw him 
and they turned to the Lord. Now let's back up for a second. Remember I said there's three elements anytime a sent one is sent. You see the power of God put on display, which we just saw in this miracle. You see the prioritizing of the local church, and you see the preaching of the gospel. Well, if you look at the text, we don't see any preaching of the gospel, but notice, again, 35. After this miracle, many people in Leda and Sharon saw this man and turned to the Lord. The text, if you read it in your NASB, makes it sound like every single person in both those cities was saved. Now that would be quite the revival. <laughs> every single soul converted. I think probably the Greek translation more wooden is like this. Those saved, all those who saw him were saved and came to know the Lord would be the idea. So those that saw the power of God came to know the Lord. But then the next question is, how do they come without a preacher? Right, Pastor? Romans 10. They must hear the good news. Well, what's assumed in this narrative is once the power of God is put on display, Ananias is probably going around and people are saying, you're, 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 you're walking. <laughs> yeah, I am. How? Jesus Christ. Excuse me? You mean Jesus Christ did this? Yes, He did it. And He calls all men to repent and believe and you should trust in Him. <laughs> and so He was likely going around evangelizing. And Peter was probably going and preaching the gospel. And the church was going around to the unbelievers in town and saying, did you hear what Jesus Christ did? He accomplished something only His power can. And someday you'll have to face that same Jesus as judge. You should be made right with Him. Revival broke out in these two towns. And the preaching of the gospel was put on display by this missionary and his missionary effort as he prioritizes church and God's power was put on display. That's the ending of the first stop there. Now you think, what else would be significant about this? Well, geography would be significant. Think about it. The promise was given to take the gospel all through the regions. If you lived in Jerusalem or the surrounding areas, you would know these little towns and know these little places. And each place you'd read about that the church was born and the gospel touched would be further affirmation to you that my Savior is building His church. It'd almost be like if GIBC was the, the first church, we're not, but let's just imagine GIBC is Jerusalem and we heard that God made the promise that He's going to take His gospel across Florida and into North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and then He's going to take it across the globe and He's going to take it over the ocean and He made that promise and I want to be a part of that mission and I believe that He's going to do that and you were in you know, Naples, where the gospel had come, and you heard, hey, Stuart's heard the gospel. And Port St. Lucie's gotten the gospel. And churches are born there. And Plantation now has the gospel. And churches are spreading out. What a bolstering of the faith of the new believers to see. We're in the middle of persecution. Everyone hates us. Pure hostilities against us. They just killed Stephen. Paul was going to come assassinate us. Another Paul's going to rise up. Everything looks so dire, but every time we look on the pages of Scripture... God's building His church, prioritizing His churches, preaching the gospel, showing off His power. We don't have to fret. That's why these narratives are in here. So that's the first one. Now he goes to a new location. He goes now to Joppa. And we're going to see the same elements arise. Preaching of the gospel for a sent one, prioritizing of the church, and God's power on display. Look at 36. Now in Joppa... There was a disciple named Tabitha. Are we at another church? You bet we are. We've got a disciple. Where disciples are gathered, there's more churches. Joppa is a coastal city, probably an hour away from uh, uh, Lida. 
Okay, now what happens here? Ladies, this is good little content for here when you look at, when you look at uh, this woman who her name is translated Dorcas because, man, she has a heart to serve. Notice verse 36. There's a woman in Joppa, a disciple at the you know, first church of Joppa there. <laughs> and she was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Man, what does it mean to be known as a woman of kindness and charity? Well, charity, the second word, literally has the idea of giving of things that you have to meet other people's needs. It's, it's literally the, the idea of I have resources or I'm using what I can to be known as one who finds people in need and gives those resources. But the word before that is really interesting. If you look back at 36, kindness, it's, it's the word to describe generosity, a life full of good deeds. The, the idea, uh, even if it's used, you could use it in a verbal idea, a person that's purposeful to find people that have need and do the best she can to be generous and gracious and kind and sacrificial and loving. We meet up Wednesdays at 10 a.m. And the Dor- I was going to mention them later. They're in here. We have Dorcas ladies here, but I was going to get to them, but I'll fast forward because she was known for... Knitting and sewing and making items for women in the church, particularly widows, we're about to see. And that's what our ladies do. Dorcas ladies, 10 a.m. What Wednesday. How many of you ladies have been to our Dorcas ladies meeting? Those are some wonderful women. They do the Haiti send-off. They make all kinds of stuff. It's tremendous. And they get it from this text right here. So you've got to imagine, this lady was not just known for those things. But guys, she was notorious in the church for him. Notice. Deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. But look back before that sentence. I deliberately skipped over one word. She was abounding. That's the idea of overflowing beyond the norm. Notorious for this. People that knew her, knew her as one so far above the rest of deeds of kindness and charity and goodness and love. Which would mean she's humble. Which would mean she's sacrificial. Which means she's prayerful. This was a humble woman of God. And when she died, this church was likely crushed. Notice, she passed. Look what happens next. And it happened at that time that she fell ill, sick, and died. We don't know what she fell ill of, but it seems to have happened fairly quickly, and she died. And then notice, they started the process of ceremonially preparing her for burial. 37. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in the upper room. So someone here in the church, here in Joppa, had a nice home with an upper room where they could prepare her body. Now look at 38. This is interesting. Since... Leda was near Joppa. The disciples, so we've got more believers in this church. This isn't disciples as if we'd say technically the apostles' disciples. Probably just disciples in the church there in Joppa, it seems. Though it could have been a couple of the Jesus' disciples. Having heard that Peter was there in the vicinity, in the area, sent two men to implore him, do not delay, come to us. Now I find that fascinating because when they viewed the miraculous gifts, think about this, in the New Testament, they envisioned them having the capacity for a man that had them to come back and raise someone from the dead. Now if the miraculous gifts, this is for another sermon, were as active today as some imagine they are, why aren't we at more... (laughs) 
grave sites, <laughs> calling on them to wake people up. They fully believed that the miraculous gift of healing under an apostle could bring the dead to life. A dead person that's literally been wrapped in ceremonial cloths, prepared for the grave, dead for some time now probably. This is similar to what Jesus did in Mark's Gospel with, with Tabitha. So, notice... Here we go. Here comes Peter. Do not delay, 38, coming to us. So Peter arose and he went to them. When he arrived, they brought him in the upper room. And notice who's there. I found this interesting. All the widows stood beside him. Who's caring for Dorcas? All the widows. So that means she was a widow? Or she had such a heart to serve that she found those in the church that could most easily be forgotten and made it her aim in life to uniquely minister to them. What a ministry. What a sacrificial heart in this woman. Either she was a widow that uniquely ministered to the widows. Like if you knew Ann Centerfit who used to be here. I used to go to her home. She lived across the street from us. I'd bring our boys over. They'd go get suckers from her. Have fun with her. Talk to her. She'd always talk to them about Christ. And once a month, her grass would fill up at her parking at her at her house with cars and all the widows from our church would come and she'd bring seminary students and pastors to give a devotional. She had a unique heart to minister to widows. She's about as pioneer and centerfit from by God West Virginia. Right? What a godly woman. My kids still ask about her, her impact on their life. So this was Dorcas. This was her ministry. Notice, the widows are there and they stood over Peter. Imagine the scene of all these widows weeping over Peter who's sitting over this dead body of this godly woman. Look at what Peter does. The widow stood beside him, weeping and showing. And notice, this is what Mike mentioned earlier, all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make so she was with them. So she didn't just give resources, she actually sewed and knitted. These were labors of love. But Peter said to them, verse 40, He sent all of them out and knelt down and prayed. You think, why would Peter send all of them out? We don't know for sure, but maybe, just maybe, he wanted the power of God to be on display at such a level. He didn't want anyone to think on any level that any other person than one sent by God could accomplish this so all would know the power of Jesus Christ in the area. So he sends them out. Jesus did the same thing other times. Sends them out, and look at what he says to her. Oh, I said Tabitha in Mark's Gospel. Tabitha is the same statement here, but that's the same uh, concept. What am I... What is it? Mark 5? Real quick, I'm going to get this right so I don't... Mark 5, Jesus does the same thing. Almost the exact same language. You guys know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. Verse 41, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithakum, which translated little girl, I say to you, get up. So it was this little girl here. He used almost the exact same language that Peter uses here when he says to her, Tabitha. So go back now to Acts if you went over there. Sorry, I lost myself there. I had a preacher moment. Something came to my mind and I almost lost us. All right. So look at verse 40 of Acts 9. But Peter sent them all out 
knelt down and prayed, and turning the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. That's almost the same language that Jesus used. And look at this. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Think about that. The miraculous gift of healing by the apostle. Her, her dead heart started beating. Her lungs that had no air in them filled back up. Her nervous system popped back on. Everything got restarted in a moment that he spoke to her on the authority of Jesus Christ. The miraculous gift of healing was truly miraculous. And then I love this. He sticks out his hand and helps her up. <laughs> Verse 41. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. He called in the church and he called the widows and he said, here's the power of God on display. And then look at 42. It became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. 43. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa at a tanner named Simon. We'll get back to that later. But look at... 42 again. It became known all over Joppa that she had been brought back to life. And look at what it says. Many believed in the Lord. What's assumed? Everyone in the church went out evangelizing. Did you hear what happened to Dorcas? She was dead and now she lives. I'm sure this woman was a wild evangelist around Joppa. What are you doing? Well, I'll tell you what happened. I was dead and I was brought back to life by the power of Christ. Do you know him? <laughs> I would imagine she just would have been an absolutely unashamed evangelist at that point. I love people like that. You go into a restaurant with them, you go anywhere, and they'll just go right up to the person and say, do you know Jesus Christ? <laughs> I'm sure she was like that. Preaching of the gospel, God's power put on display, and the church prioritized shows up in both narratives here. So let's talk about for us for a second. Hmm. Let's think about us for a second. How could we, beloved, missionary then is just a term as a sent one. The classic case of a missionary is one sent maybe across the globe. Here, Peter would be a representative missionary, an itinerant missionary work. But you and I, if we're part of the Great Commission and we're an extension of these local churches, we are commissioned by Jesus to fulfill the Great Commission, right? So by, by implication, we could say, one, our life should be about what? Prioritizing the local church because that's what Jesus prioritizes through His sent ones. Two, we could say we should be about preaching the gospel, guys. You have people in your life that don't know Christ. You've got family members. You've got students on campus. You've got, you've got people at your workplace. How regularly are you thinking about seeing the great mission of Jesus go forth by getting in gospel conversations to engage them about what Christ wants from them to repent and turn from their sins and trust Him? Is your life about souls? Because if you lived in the book of Acts and the New Testament church, they were all about souls. We live in this consumer culture. We get so caught up with ourselves. We miss the fact that the mission of God for our life is prioritizing the church and being about souls. Thirdly then, what about this power? Well, as the New Testament unfolds, you see the sign gifts go off the scene, don't you? The sign gifts start to diminish. Even 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, which were written so you could know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, you see no discussion of the miraculous sign gifts. You know what you do see though? you see the power of God put on display through holy lives. You know how God's power is to show up in your life? When people meet you, they should say, what is it about you? What do you have that I don't? Why do you live the way you do? Why is it you can find happiness and fulfillment without immersing yourself in the culture and I must be immersed in the world and the culture or I can't be fulfilled? What is it about you? And you could say just like them, I know the power of God. 
It's transformed my life. I've seen God's power put on display. And you can testify from your life the power of God. All through the New Testament, the power of God is put on display by holy, set-apart lives. I mean, think about people in the world. I preached uh, this last week, as you know, down at PBA. And it was wonderful because I preached on the war for, your, for souls, 1 Peter 2.11, and then 1 Peter 2.12, how your holy, set-apart, um, sanctified life is the, the means God can use to save people when they see you showing off the power of the gospel. I got a whole bunch of people that thought, man, that was great, and I got a whole bunch of people that snarled at me. Why do I say that? Because living a powerful, holy life is polarizing just like Jesus' ministry was polarizing. Just like the New Testament church's life was polarizing. How do we show off the power of God in a polarizing way? Holiness. So, so beloved, those that came up to me when I was down at PBA and loved the Word, I'm like, yes, Lord, get the Word to your people. And those that, that, that chafed against it and didn't like to see the call to holiness, I grieved over them because I thought, I've just introduced you to the God of the Bible and you don't like Him. That concerns me about you. When people meet you, do they see the power of God? Do they see happiness and fulfillment in God? Or do you need all the stuff of the culture to be satisfied? Beloved, I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying we don't have rough days. I'm not saying we don't cry and weep and have difficulty. But even in those moments, wouldn't it be great if unbelievers saw us and we could say, you know what? Even when I'm down and discouraged and even depressed, I know my God is good. Something an unbeliever could never say. My God is faithful even when life hurts. Missionaries, in one sense, are you and I. You're sent ones. Missionaries, as we define it, is those that cross geographical boundaries to go somewhere. But I'm not so sure, beloved, that we've attached so much baggage to this term, we've lost it. The only way we should use this term is if we allow people to define it the way God defines it. Those that are sent to see churches established, churches planted, and churches supported. To see the power of God put on display and the gospel preached. Outside of that, you don't see other work going on for mission work of sent ones in your New Testament. You say, what about James 1.27, orphans and widows, and keep yourself unstained by the world. Yeah, show off a powerful holy life and Christian compassion to people that are hurting. Of course you do that, but it's all about getting the gospel to them. So, that is why I believe Luke wanted this in the Scriptures. So we would see God's love for His church, God's love for His power put on display, and God's love for His gospel. And next week, we get to see a 7,000-year potential wall ripped down when Cornelius is added to an all-Jewish congregation. It's amazing. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this. This morning, it's fun to engage our minds on missiology, missions, ecclesiology, the church. We're going to go and hear a great message on sanctification from John and our liberties. And yet, our theology is protected by church life, body life. I pray that these beloved saints in here, these beloved disciples in here, would preach your gospel, would prioritize your church, and would show off your power through holy lives. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.